You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. The concept of this episode came from one of my biggest supporters and someone who has been listening since episode one. And so not only would I like to dedicate this episode to you, Rick, but also wanted to thank you for coming up with the concept. And that's a good reminder that I'm always looking for suggestions. And if you have any, please let me know. Like in this episode's case, it can take a while for ideas to become a reality, but I'm always looking for how to slot a wide variety of ideas into the podcast. I'd like to also mention that one of my guests on this episode is offering a special discount on trail tools of 30% through the rest of 2019. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for more details. Now, as always, I'm your host, Brian Hillier, and this is episode 72 of Frontlines. I'm joined by three guests today. All of them are professional trail builders. They're spread across North America. And first, I'm joined by Shane Wilson. He joins us from Hood River, Oregon, and is the Trail Solutions Project Manager with the International Mountain Bicycling Association, also known as IMBA. Hi, Shane. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And next is Greg Mezu. He joins us from Fort Collins, Colorado, and is the Chief Encouragement Officer at Single Track Trails. Hey, Greg, thanks for joining. How's it going? And uh, last, we've got Pat Podolsky. He joins us from North Vancouver, British Columbia, and he's the owner-operator of Golden Dirt Trails. Hi, Pat. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, thanks, everybody. I really appreciate you taking the, the time to join me. All of you are professional trail builders, but I'm, I'm curious as to, to how you got your start. Uh, what was your, your first trail building experience? Pat, do you want to start us off? Um, yeah, so I just started volunteering, um, just building trails for fun and kind of seeing what it was all about. I've always had an interest in just trail construction from a very young age. I was lucky enough to have friends that their parents let us build um, structures and jumps and stuff in their backyards and ride as we were kids. So I've always had that interest. Kind of just went from there volunteering and then basically got given a couple contracts and kind of moved to the professional world of what trail building is all about and how it's how it yeah how it goes. Go ahead, Greg. I started out as a volunteer here in Fort Collins. My girlfriend took me out to a couple trail building days and then I just had the interest to start learning more. Got a job with Colorado State Parks at the time, and one day I realized that they paid me more as a contractor than as a seasonal staffer. <laughs> and uh, so I, I woke up one day and realized I had a company, and uh, not really ever having to make the decision to go into business for myself. And Shane, what about yourself? Uh, well, back when I started mountain biking in the '90s, uh, early '90s, I would I loved riding this trail called Dog River, and it frustrated me to no end, though, that the the Forest Service kept putting these these really ridiculous water bars on this trail. And they were building them with these two chunks of two by six that they sandwiched a flapping rubber piece of black flapping rubber to so the flapping <laughs> yeah. black rubber pointed up and it was supposed to block water. And I, I don't know what it was really supposed to do, but it, it never worked. But what it did do consistently is it made you like lose your front wheel as you would try to ride across it. 
And so you'd crash your brains out. Well, it drove me absolutely crazy. So I would get so angry that I would grab these things and I would dig them out of the ground and I would chuck them down the hill slope. (laughs) And I did this repeatedly. And every time I'd come back to ride that trail, the Forest Service had tromped down the hill and picked up these water bars and reinstalled them. And so after like, you know, a year of, of, of beating my head up against this wall, I realized that I, I needed to actually get involved and become a volunteer and work with and learn how to partner with the Forest Service. And so that's how I got started with trail stuff. Yeah, I, I remember a trail on the North Shore that had those exact same flapper water bars. They were a complete nightmare. And and my favorite part about them, too, is when, when we would get the biggest torrential downpours, they would flap over and not actually work. <laughs> I know which ones you're talking about. Maybe that was part of the Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so my, my next question is, uh, is I'd love to know where, where the majority of, of your contracts come from each of you. And, and so are, are you dealing primarily with municipalities, land managers, you know, like the Forest Service or, or BLM, resorts like ski resorts, for example, or, or nonprofit trail associations? Where do each of you kind of get the, the bulk of your work from? Or is it spread out evenly across all of those? I can go on that one. Yeah, go ahead, Shane. For our company, you know, we work mostly in the United States and then a little bit internationally, it really runs the gamut. There definitely has been periods in our company's history where, man, a, a really tremendous amount of the contracts were coming from the, the federal government and also coming quite a bit from nonprofits. But more and more, we're getting contracts from municipalities, you know, city governments, county governments, parks and rec districts who are looking to beef up and have really good robust trail systems or bike parks or any kind of bike, uh, you know, slash trails infrastructure put in. And I I think that's a result of so much investment being made by federal agencies in trail systems throughout the U S earlier in this decade. I think it's kind of the output of that is that now there's more demand for trails that are closer to people's closer where people live, or as we love to say, more trails close to home. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that new slogan that that Imba has. I'm, I I think urban trails are are one of the things that that brings a lot of of good. Um, they've got all these kind of secondary benefits uh, as well. And and somebody that you know, I'm I'm someone that moved to a community that had trails close to where I could live and and work. And uh, and I know that not everybody has that luxury, and not every community is like that but uh trails close to home is uh is definitely something i think is is extremely important definitely it's nothing new you know it's definitely something's been mm-hmm. around for a long time so it's not something yeah. that we invented by any means but it's a great message to spread it actually resonates really well pat go ahead yeah i mean mine's my work's pretty much spread across the board um it's mostly is for bike associations here in british columbia you know there is sometimes a joint ventures like i this this summer i worked up north uh, with the Smithers Mountain Bike Association and Rec Sites and Trails BC, where they both put funding in for their project. But yeah, I'm definitely seeing more of that infrastructure thing for bike parks, which I'm definitely starting to lean um, more into, because I just think it's just a great thing for to get families out and seeing the pump tracks and everything that are kind of going off. It, it's kind of opening the door for a lot of people. And um, I think it's that's really great. But yeah, definitely I'm I'm kind of spread pretty evenly with the trail associations and then capital funding and grants that uh, government through government uh, and just bike associations. And Greg, what about yourself in single track trails? 
most of the work that we do is with state governments or lower in, in structure. Uh, any of the work that we do on federal land is is usually funded through the non-pro- a nonprofit locally or like a county government that we're contracting with right now. So, and then we have a, a, about thirty percent of our projects are are with private entities as well. Now, uh, Pat, you already answered this question, but uh, you you kind of mentioned pump tracks and skills parks and and bicycle playgrounds, and I'm I'm kind of I'm going to guess Shane that uh, that Trail Solutions is is working on on that uh, as well with kind of their the mandate of of trails closer to home. And correct me if I'm wrong. But Greg, what, just curious if, if you primarily work on trails or only work on trails or if you're also working on, on skills parks and pump tracks, that kind of thing. We do some skill parks and pump tracks, but I would say 90% of the projects that we do are shared use non-motorized trails. Now, when it comes to municipalities looking to build these types of, of skills parks, how much freedom uh, from, from all of your experience, how much freedom is given to you to kind of execute what, what you might envision a, a skills park to look like? And the, the reason why I ask this is because I, I assume that most municipalities have less experience as to what a skills park really is compared to any of you. And perhaps some expect a beginner experience for kids, while others might expect a more advanced dirt jump park. And so is there a long process of, and I hesitate to even, you know, consultation would be the term that obviously the, the contractor is going to, going to use, but it's, it's almost more education from your point of, of educating the municipality as to what a skills park might be, or maybe is it pulling information out of them as to what they want this to look like? Or is it simply they hire you and say, like, build us one of these kind of new skills parks and and they let you have at it? Yeah, I can jump in there. Yeah, go ahead, Pat. Yeah. So I think, I mean, for my experiences, it's been, we, we kind of go to them and they say, well, we're looking for this kind of experience for, you know, this type of age. And we then come back to them and, and kind of we're going through that engagement piece and go consultation piece. We We've definitely gone through and just kind of got information from the people locally, what they're after. And, you know, we listen to them and definitely kind of go back to the drawing board and see what we can put in the space that we're given. I think it's really important that, you know, I have two kids at home, so I've seen them progress on bikes. So I think it's given me a better appreciation of what is kind of needed to get kids going. But at the same time, the the adult and kid in me, wants that little more advanced pump track jumps kind of things that you know I always wanted as a kid too so I think in a design consultation that's always a part of it. Shane what about your experience? I think probably the most interesting thing that's going on is what we're seeing a lot from communities is this desire to have really good robust infrastructure for it starts out with this interest for bikes but it really kind of seems to like be it seems to kind of go more in the direction of like ways to get kids on things that have wheels and have fun. And so it's really a little funny because it starts to kind of like lean away from, you know, this mountain bike trail building industry and it kind of takes it into this other industry that's maybe more like play based and playground based and, you know, a world that's been traditionally inhabited more by maybe skate park builders. But what we see more and more is, communities that they they see the videos and they see the, the brochures and they see all the excitement about things like 
bicycle playgrounds for kids and surface pump track type features or pump parks. And this stuff really works well for municipalities because number one, it generally just requires that municipal staff have a weed whacker and a leaf blower because the, the surface itself pretty much takes care of itself. And that's, that's a bit of a, a lie, but <laughs> compared to dirt, it's, you know, it's stable. It's going to feel good. It's going to ride well. And kids are going to have a good, safe, fun, happy time on it. So those kinds of features being made out of asphalt or concrete or other engineered materials, they're really attractive for communities. And it feels a lot more plug and play. It doesn't feel like it necessarily has to be as much of the complexities that are involved with moving just the right amount of dirt to just the right place, packing it just right, and then maintaining it in just the right way. And those things are, are so great for anything with wheels. You know, so if it's like a surfaced you know, asphalt or concrete pump track or pump park, if you've got a skateboard, if you've got a scooter, if you've got a little bike, if you've got rollerblades, God forbid, you're going to go out there and have fun. But at the same time, we talk about wanting all of the toys and all the fun and everything else. Sometimes the challenge with those features is, you know, where's the progression? A lot of times it feels like, okay, this community is just putting in stuff for kids. Well, what are they going to do next? What are they going to do when they get bored of that pump track? Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things that I'd, I'd like to kind of discuss in that. Because I, I think um, when we build these types of facilities, obviously the kids are going to age out of them and, and potentially very quickly. I mean, the We spoke about uh, on the podcast, we spoke about bicycle playgrounds and they're a great way to kind of get young, young kids into it. But very quickly, kids get great at riding. I mean, Pat, I can even, uh, you know, just seeing the videos that, that you post of, of your son, right? Like the progression mm-hmm. that he's had over the last couple of years is, is astronomical. I, you know, I see it in, in my son already on his run bike of like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, we're already thinking about like, Oh crap, I, we need to get an, another bike for him. Like it's time to upgrade from the run bike. So these kids are picking up and if they've don't, if they don't have something else to kind of go to, um, then that can be a, a challenge. Like if we're only building level one stuff, then, uh, then we almost all the good work that we've done getting these kids hooked on bikes or hooked on wheels kind of goes away if they get bored after a little while. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's, there's definitely like our latest bike park that we just built. We built two pump tracks. One was a, a blue intermediate one and one is a green kind of low grade angled one. But then we were able by the municipality to build a slope, a mini slope style line, which when we first proposed it, I didn't know if they're going to go for it because obviously there's, you know, big, pretty big jumps. But I guess they they understand, um, at least the municipality I was working with, they understand that exactly what we're talking about, that progression. If there's not there, you know, the kids will ride it a few times and then they're going to go build their own stuff because they're going to want to progress and get better and, and have fun with their bikes. So I think I think it's starting to resonate a little bit more and more. And I think, you know, that's whenever I'm designing now and I'm, I'm always thinking about what if this kid's going to be wanting to progress, more, just not just ride pump tracks. He wants to do jumps. Um, he wants to do this. He wants to ride features. So I'm kind of always now envisioning, you know, my son, I don't know, you're right, him progressing. He's just progressed at a crazy rate. And I don't think you really, you don't see it when it's in your second person, just kind of, you know, seeing everything unfold in front of you instead of just, mm-hmm. you know, when you're riding your bike and, Obviously, you, every, all of us have probably progressed, but when you see somebody else progress at a crazy pace, you're like, whoa, okay, you maybe start thinking about how we can make it fun for kids to, to stay at these tracks and these 
this other infrastructure that we're creating for them. So the the other piece that was mentioned, Shane, in, in your previous answer is maintenance. Yeah. And so this is something where we are seeing, you know, a lot of these asphalt pump tracks because they are uh, low maintenance. But whether it's skills parks or trails, uh, how much is is maintenance discussed with these contracts? Like, are you you're coming into communities? You're either doing new builds, new trails, or you're doing full retrofits of an old trail that potentially by the time that the project's done, it, it's going to look like a, a new trail. Is there any conversation about maintenance and, and a timeline of like, how are we going to keep this trail maintained? How are we going to keep this facility maintained? Are you part of that? Do you come back to communities to to do some maintenance work? Um, do you have any repeat contracts with with communities to actually come in and do maintenance, or is or is that always left to the land manager or the trail association after the fact? There's definitely a lot of different solutions. One example would be in the state of Arkansas, we have a grant funded program to uh, where we have a trail crew that is fully funded by this grantor. And that, that trail crew goes out and does basic maintenance. Primary, I mean, honestly, it's primarily vegetation maintenance. on Basically, all of the longer, more epic, more backcountry trails in Arkansas. So this wouldn't be necessarily the front country stuff like you'd see like right in downtown Bentonville, Arkansas. But the stuff that's out there, things like the Womble Trail, uh, that kind of thing. Without that crew, those trails would be you know, nearly impassable within just a couple of years because it, there's just so much vegetation maintenance to do. So that'd be one example of, of you know, how maintenance gets done. Another example would be like in the bike park world where you're primarily trying to, number one, let this municipality know that they have just purchased a, a black lab puppy. And the black lab puppy is not going to like probably grow up at any point. It's always going to be a puppy and it's always <laughs> going to lick your face and it's always going to pee everywhere. And it's always going to chew your slippers and anything else that's expensive. It's a lot of work to maintain this black lab puppy. known as a bike park. And so as you go into that construction phase, understanding that that's what you've got, that you've got to have all of these plans and strategies, on how to manage this place and, keep everybody safe and keep that fun, progressive, exciting uh, experience, like keep sustaining that. You got to really have that in mind ahead of time because with bike parks, it's generally speaking, you're looking at, we estimate something like 20% of your, of your initial infrastructure cost. You can probably expect to spend that much every year in maintenance. And that's very different from like more natural surface trails, like good old fashioned, you know, single track where you're, you might maybe possibly have to spend 5% annually on maintenance of your initial infrastructure cost. So it's a big jump when you get up into that bike park world, a lot more financial responsibility for the land manager. Now it sounds like it, but you know, is this, is this where you're educating a lot of these folks on that, like it, when people are are looking for a skills park or, or even a trail that they just think like it's a one time you come in, you build it and then it, it lasts forever. That is, I think that that was the way a lot of folks thought about it in the past, but I don't, I think it's really rare that you've got a professional trail builder out there who's doing that now. I think 
my experience, most builders are really good, really ethical. They want to have strong uh, relationships with that community or land manager. And they're letting people know in advance, hey, this stuff that we're building, you're going to need professional staff or you're going to need a long-term maintenance contract maybe to have a, a specialist come in and, and tune it up every year to six months. There's just some examples, but it's it's. I think everybody in the professional trail building industry is pretty dang ethical about that. The volunteer side, sometimes you'll see volunteer groups that they've kind of told told the uh, land manager something a little bit different, and it's not because they didn't. It's not because they're trying to mislead the land manager. They just don't know. Yeah, you know, they didn't know that that thing was a black lab puppy. Yeah, and so oftentimes you'll see, you know, a really cool progression, which is. Hey, you know, the volunteer group built this awesome bike park that rode amazing, you know, on day one. And now here we are, you know, a year, two years later, and it's covered with grass and full of mud holes. Let's make something better for the community. That's a, that's a good thing. Greg, you got thoughts on that? Yeah. And well, just to take a slight tangent on what was just said there is, is, you know, the, the term that we've been trying to use more and it's already been used today on the podcast is it, infrastructure yeah. and, and, and capital investment and letting people know that, Hey, this is infrastructure that you are investing dollars into and it needs to be maintained over over a period of time the the thought that trail ferries build bike parks and trails anymore is <laughs> is is hopefully diminishing and now it's known that the trail elves who have a union and get paid are known for 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 building building all this infrastructure that we're creating and so so the, that's the we are having those conversations more and more with folks is just just because we build it doesn't mean they will come. And just because we build it doesn't mean you won't have to come back and do a little bit of maintenance. You know, it's, it's kind of been mentioned already with, with trail associations, but how much do, do each of you spend time working with your local trail association? Like are, are some of you even involved directly with your local trail association as, as, as a builder or um, perhaps on, on their committees or, or on their boards? Um, or is it a case of, of like, you know, I would assume that you're all, you all spend a lot of time away from home, that it's just not feasible for you to be directly involved with your local trails and your local trail association. So, so for me personally, I try not to spend more than five days in, in any one location. So, <laughs> so, so about, about 10 or 12 years ago here in Fort Collins, I, I kind of moved on from the local trail group. Uh, I'm involved with the trail group a little bit ancillarily over in Grand Junction. And the third place that I spend some time is Winter Park, Colorado. And, and the trail groups up there are just completely dysfunctional. And so it's just better to stay away for, for some sanity. But we have six projects going across the country. And so so there's always conversations with the local trail groups. But to be involved and, and to be active in them, it's, I personally don't have the time to stay in one location long enough to, to, do, to do that. Now, Shane, what, uh, what about yourself? I know, I, I think that I know deep down that I, that I need to be more involved with my local trail organization. But over the past 10 years or so, I've been gone, you know, nine months of the year, probably. So now that's changed in the last two years because now I've got a new son. So now I've almost reversed that where I'm actually only gone about a week a month. Uh, that's been a tremendous luxury, but it still, you know, every time you have to travel and you're kind of like, I, I swear, I feel like this happens every time. As soon as I have something booked and then I cross it over and look at the schedule of when there are meetings for my local trail association, it's always like during that same week. Yeah. So yeah. 
but fortunately, like years ago, our local trails, we had this funny system where the individual trails need to be adopted by an individual person. It's a crazy system that's full of all kinds of liability risks that I choose to just ignore. So I don't have a choice. But years ago, I adopted a couple of trails that were otherwise supposedly going to be closed because they're totally unsustainable and super steep and gnarly and rocky and whatever. But they were the only challenging, like really, truly challenging, natural feeling trails on the hill. So I adopted those. And so I continue to do absolute minimum amount of maintenance possible on those trails every year because I like the I like how they evolve. And Pat, what about yourself? I'm lucky enough that I, I travel not as much as, uh, as other guys here. I'm able to kind of keep working on my local trails and stay with the, tra- the trail crew that I help lead here uh, on the North Shore. So I, I'm, you know, I really love the trails here and we've got a lot of heritage and I just love, you know, giving back to and rebuilding right now. I'm rebuilding some stuff on Boundary. It's just crazy to uh, work with yeah, that history. And so I'm going to continue to give back as much as I can, whether it be volunteer or paid building, because I think it's, yeah, I think it's great to just give back and uh, be a part of something. And our community here on the North Shore is, is unbelievable. We have some amazing, amazing builders here. So I think, yeah, just I'm, I'm pretty f- lucky and fortunate to, uh, be able to live on, on the shore here. So, and, you know, I, I think there's got to be a, a balance to this, you know, and, and number one is, and it's already kind of been touched on is, is the work-life balance of, of being away and, and being at home. You know, I, I was somebody that, you know, in, in my career spent a lot of time in the backcountry and just not only away, but not even reachable for, for weeks. And that doesn't work, obviously, when you have kids. And so, you know, trying to to have that balance. But at the same time, too, I think within a community, there's got to be a bit of a, a perception that like, you know, hey, we've got this professional trail builder in our town. Like, they've got to be able to help us out. You know, they, they do this professionally, but, but perhaps this unrealistic, you know, they don't, they just don't understand what it is to be a professional trail builder that you are on the road. So, you know, I, I think, is there this like balance of like, just making sure that you're, you're around enough that you're making, you know, you're, you're known within your own community that people see you, but also recognizing that like, you've only got so much time and obviously too, you can't be giving away your services uh, for free. You know, it's uh, there's, there's a uh, mouths to be fed, whether it's yourselves or, or others. Yeah, I mean, here on the North Shore, like I just get paid a wage, um, and, it, and it's not a very high wage because I work for a nonprofit association. So I totally like get it. Um, I make my money when I'm contracted, and you know, I spent all summer away from my two kids and my fiance. So for me, it's it's tough to be away, and that's that balancing act. You know, I, I've definitely pulled away, and these contracts have pulled me away from from some of this building at home. But I've always. And I always will, as long as I live here on the shore, we'll, we'll try to, you know, keep that, that balance alive and work on some projects that I know, you know, the community needs. And, you know, if I can give back in that way, then I'm going to continue to do so. And, you know, you can only do so much and go so far because um, life is, is crazy and busy. I'll take kind of the opposite point of view. The more we work at home, or close to home, the higher my stress level is, <laughs> and the farther farther away we go, the more and more relaxed I am, and and just uh, and just 
enjoy putting projects on the ground. Um, when, when you work at home, everybody has an opinion. They're like kittens that they're always giving them away to you at the, at the local brewery, at the bar, out to dinner, on the ride, and telling you what you did wrong. And typically, when we get a contract elsewhere in, in the country, you know, people are pretty pumped when we get there. So it's definitely the ego boost on that. And so, you know, I, I like to say that I, I live nowhere, but I have a home everywhere. And, uh, and that's, that's really kind of what gets me through all the travel. Shane, anything to add to that? I, I think I'm lucky in a way because there's, there's no shortage of good builders in my area. Not necessarily. There's, there's a couple of other really good professional trail builders here close by. So it definitely puts me in a situation where I don't have to get real worried about the, the local stuff. Most of it's in, in good hands. So that's, that's a luxury. The work-life balance, like, it's just, there's no such thing, I guess. That's, that's like a myth, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, I have no idea what that would look like. <laughs> there's, you know, it's, while it would be fantastic to be able to just focus my efforts on this place where I grew up, where I have lived pretty much my whole life, at the same time, I get a tremendous amount of self-satisfaction from the contributions and the work, the outputs of all of the, all of the education. I mean, all of the planning, design, building, whatever, all of the work that I've done throughout the, the U S and the world I've spent a number of years, definitely sacrificing home life to do things like trail building schools throughout Europe. And now I can look at that network of friends and compatriots that I educated in Europe, but you know, looking at Facebook or Instagram or whatever. I look at those things and I see all of these these people who attended trail building schools and learned all of these different skills and functions, capabilities. And, you know, half of them now are professional trail builders working in places that are absolutely iconic now among mountain bikers. Some of them are passionate volunteers in places like Finale de Gure in Italy. You know, it's it's pretty cool to be able to say, well, I don't have to be obsessed with the, what I've done around my home. I don't have to worry about all those details because I can actually make huge contributions elsewhere and, and be inspired by that and happy with that. My last question for each of you is what is your personal specialty? What's the thing that you like to do the most or what's the thing that, that you're, you're best at and feel free in your answer to repeat the name of your business over and over again too. So people can, can hear it. Uh, but I just want to know like, what's, what's the, what's your favorite kind of contract to take on? What's, what's the, what's the, the thing that you really like to work on? Uh, well, I'll start it out. The thing that I love to do anymore is, is, is run the business. I learned a long time ago that I have a whole bunch of really good diggers behind me that are out working for me. And the best thing I could ever do is to get out of their way and let them build the trail. And so, so now my job as, as the chief encouragement officer is to travel the country doing business development, getting the contracts and having them lined up and making sure that they all have the right machines, the right tools, the right connections to get the job done and supersede everybody's expectations. I mean, for me, I, I think, I mean, just being creative and being able to go in the forest still and, and, you know, as my business grows now, I'm still, you know, fairly young as far as business, business wise. So I think I'm still able to get out there and do a lot of the work myself. I know that, you know, as my business grows and things, I'm gonna have to get bigger and I'm not, I'm just gonna pull me out of the forest 
um, more and more. So I think just that creativity that trail building gives you and, you know, watching, doing some crazy woodwork projects or dirt, you know, a jump trail or something, it just, no matter what it is, it's just that creative process. Trail building is an art form to me. So just being able to, to keep doing that is, is unreal. I think, I mean, from a, from a personal perspective, you know, carrying on and spreading a lot of the messages uh, that Emba has, has kind of popularized over the last 20 plus years of building sustainable trails, really enjoy spreading those messages and lessons and tools, et cetera, and best practices through trail building schools. That is probably one of the things I find the most, the most rewarding on a long-term level is going out to different places around the world and teaching people how to build better trails than they were building before and then seeing the results over time. As a company, the thing that I love seeing us do is uh, I love seeing us build really good, challenging, single track, ideally by hand. I love seeing some of the handwork that we do, and then I love seeing some of the work that we do where you can't tell it wasn't built by hand. Some of the work that we did over the last couple of years in Deep Creek State Park in Maryland, and the photos and videos that I get from the crew on that are unbelievable got a crew working in Cedar City, Utah right now. And some of the photos that they're sending me of trail that was built, you know, a combination of a dozer, a mini excavator, and with handwork in cooperation with the local club, the Dixie Mountain Bike Association. It's just unbelievable what these guys are putting down out there in, in the desert. You know, So those are the kinds of things I really get stoked on. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much to, to all of you for taking the time to chat with me to just uh, go through kind of your experience and and uh, and, and what you do. Uh, and also just have a great, uh, I, I'm sure all of you are going to have some time off over the, the holidays that are coming up. And so uh, it's well deserved, I'm sure for all of you. So uh, thank you again. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks. I want to thank each of my guests for joining me. And if your community is looking to hire a trail builder, then please find their contact info and links in the show notes. You can find information about Shane Wilson and the Imba Trail Solutions by visiting imba.com and navigating to Trail Solutions under the Explore Imba menu option. Trail Solutions specializes in education, planning, design, and building. And the Imba brand is recognized by land managers all over the world. You can find information about Patrick Podolsky and the Golden Dirt Trails at goldendirttrails.com. Pat has worked on a number of projects, primarily across British Columbia, Canada, and I encourage you to explore Pat's quote-unquote trail art on his Instagram account. And info about Greg May Zoo and the Single Track Trails can be found at singletracktrails.com. Single Track Trails specializes in trail design, project planning, construction, maintenance, inventory mapping, assessment, and project marketing. Greg Mezu is also the owner and operator of Tools for Trails, and he's offering a special discount to Frontline's MTB listeners. From now until December 31st, 2019, you can get 30% off any order by visiting toolsfortrails.com slash discount slash Frontline's 30. And if you act fast for the last two days of November, you can receive a 40% discount off any orders over $250. So visit toolsfortrails.com and check out a wide variety of tools, packs, gloves, and more. I'd like to also share some recent news. The California Mountain Biking Coalition has received their official nonprofit status and are currently bringing on an interim executive director. And you can look forward to an episode with the California Mountain Biking Coalition in the new year. 
Congratulations to the team there for all the hard work they've been putting into making this happen. All California mountain biking and trail advocates, prospective board members, or sponsors are invited to participate on the California Mountain Biking Coalition Slack channel. And you're also invited to join their fall statewide conference call on December 3rd at 6 p.m. Pacific time. In the show notes, you'll find information on how to join that call. Now, this will be our last episode until the new year, so enjoy the holidays and thank you all for your support. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. You can also join the Facebook group at Advocates on the Frontlines of MTB. You can send me an email or audio file to info at FrontlinesMTB.com. You can stream the show on Mountain Bike Radio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and most recently, Spotify. If you haven't done so already, leave a review on wherever you get the show. It helps others find the podcast. I'd like to thank Reynold, James, and Bev for their donations. Don't forget to support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes. And December 3rd is Giving Tuesday, so consider supporting the podcast that you just listened to. You can also support the show by visiting frontlinesmtb.com shop and follow the links to Amazon. From there, a portion of any purchases made on Amazon after following those links will be sent to the podcast. So do your holiday shopping and ensure that this podcast can stay on the air. Music, as always, is by Lee Rosevere. Production notes by Jennifer Pride. Artwork is created by Brandon Gallagher-Watson and BGW Creative. And a big thanks to Ben Welnack and the team at Mountain Bike Radio for their continued support. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening, and happy trails.